0: Welcome to Le, C- Le Cadeau podcast. Um, today my guest is Vic Hummert. Um, he's an old friend, <laughs> not that old. My friends and I are not that old. <laughs> and we've had um, lots of different experiences together. And I, I really started thinking about the things we've experienced, the uh, places we've worked and how we have met. It, uh, it, it's quite a lot. And the topic today, Vic, is going to be um, death and dying. And one of the places that I met you and worked with you was I as a hospice volunteer and you as a hospice chaplain. That was quite... What do you remember about that? How did you get to do hospice in Lafayette?
1: Well, I was going to do hospice work in uh, San Antonio, and some friends of mine who live in Lafayette... They were in Hong Kong when I was there, so that's how I knew them. And they asked me, why are you going to work in San Antonio? You'll spend half of your day driving around that big city. Why don't you come to Lafayette, where we also have a hospice service, and you can work here? I said, fine, you find a job for me with hospice in Lafayette, and I will come here. So that's how I came here 20 years ago as a chaplain for hospice.
0: Now, I was thinking the hospice office... Then was like in downtown Lafayette. It's not at the current location, is no, it?
1: No, not anymore. It was downtown. Yeah. It
0: was downtown, and I lived not far from there. Mm-hmm. Buchanan was, Street. Yeah. Wow. So, um, when you were working there as a hospice patient, you saw a lot of people, right? How long did you work there? How I many three
1: years? 3,000 patients.
0: Wow. Wow. Did you find it was a culture shock to move to Lafayette in the Cajun culture compared to (laughs) Breeze, Illinois? I know you're from Breeze, Illinois.
1: Breeze, Illinois, population 2,000. And in 150 years, there's been one murder in Breeze, Illinois. Wow. Whereas in... This area, its not I don't, that way. I don't have to say anymore.
0: We have no stats for that. Yeah. So it's a, it was a shock. I'm sure.
1: Yeah. And I, I didn't drive a car for 25 years. Wow. So when I came here, I found out that I had to have a car to visit, to visit hospice patients. And that was terrifying to get on Kali Saloon, <laughs> Ambassador Caffrey, especially in the, the Christmas season. It was a shock just to get on on the road, but I survived all that. So I it's do. 20 years. Wow. And 3,000 dying patients, some, one of whom is still alive.
0: Wow. Yeah, and I was a personal friend with some of, your, some of the people you work with, and uh, I remember one particular uh, hospice patient was an English teacher. And every time she saw me, she told me she wanted one of your haiku right out of the oven.
1: (laughs) Right, fresh out of the oven.
0: (laughs) Fresh out of the oven. So tell me about, uh, well, anything that you would like to share about getting acclimated to this culture.
1: Well, it was a big help to uh, meet a lovely Cajun lady by the name of Mm Rosalind, who introduced me to the culture, a little bit of French and some of the Cajun words. So, and then uh, it's a very warm culture. I mean, you don't have to know you don't have to know French. Her mother at 100 and, she died at 107. Wow. But she was bilingual. So, I didn't feel any pressure to learn French. I could get by in English. And then I had to get used to eating uh, gumbo and a lot of uh, Cajun foods, that I'm a vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) That is not acceptable, so (laughs) I had to become a flexitarian.
0: Well, that worked. Yeah. So do you feel that the culture of death and dying, or how we deal with death and dying, here is different than in Breeze? Or any other place? How, how How do you see any differences there?
1: Well see, I didn't really do any ministry in my hometown of Breeze. I was just a hometown boy. Yeah. And then later on, I became a priest, and I went to Hong Kong, and I'd been gone from my hometown from, from my teenage years, really. mm 1960s when I left completely. So, but anywhere I go, especially in the Chinese culture, they do not like to talk about death the word for death is say, like S-A-Y with a, a rising tone. hmm And the word for four is say, a level tone. Chinese is tonal. So if you don't get the right tone, you're saying something very wrong. Very wrong. So okay. if you say say, that means die. And for the Chinese, it's a curse word. Oh, wow. say So it's a death-averting society. But I find it, you know, wherever I go, people don't like to talk about death. But in hospice, there's no... The only way you're going to get into hospice is by being told by a doctor you only have six months to a year left to live. So death is right there. It's like a backdrop. So we have to deal with it. And it didn't bother me because at the age of 35 in Hong Kong, I was told by doctors to write out your will which I did because I had a brain tumor the size of a tennis ball. So, I'm 79 years old now, but at age 35, I wrote out my will, and I've just uh, accepted death. But here I am, <laughs> 44 years later.
0: <laughs> I hear you. So. Yeah.
1: But it's a beautiful culture, as I meant to say. Even though you're not one of the Cajuns, you're accepted warmly. And they call me an American, in fact, one of your good friends, who was a social worker with hospice, she said, well, you're, you're not one of us, you're an American. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to have Rosalyn explain that to me. What, what's an American? Well, you're just not someone from down here. But here I am, 20 years later. Still not, down I'm here. I'm still an American.
0: So if, were you, you were like in China when the hospice movement started here. Um, when you were doing and serving as a priest, did you serve people at all except for like administering the sacraments of extreme unction? That was a different kind of service than when you were a hospice chaplain.
1: Well, in Hong Kong, I I discovered squatters. Now, I had to explain that word to a lot of people back in the States because we don't have squatters. We have homeless people. They sleep on park benches, and they move around, but they're not building little shacks. They can't do that. Mm-hmm. But in Hong Kong, I discovered squatters, and I decided that I I didn't want to get frozen into church work, strictly speaking. I wanted right. to be with the people who, there's a word that I like called the anawim. Right. The Anawim, you know that word? It means uh, God's forsaken, you know, kind of rejected, marginalized people. Sort of, yeah. So the squatters in Hong Kong were the Anawim. And when you see them on the ground, it's easy to uh, access them because they're there on the ground. But the government had an office called squatter control. And they would go and knock down the shacks of the squatters and then terrorize them, really, so the squatters moved to the rooftops, and there were 30,000 rooftop squatters when I was in Hong Kong, and I got very close with them, went to court with them, and tried to help them find accessible places to live on the ground. Mm -hmm. So that was my parish, squatters, and they, well, there was...
0: when a squatter died and they had nothing, how did you provide for a funeral for them?
1: I had a hut fund. To learn the language better, I worked in a factory, a plastics factory in in Hong Kong.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Three bosses from New York City, and one of them, Mr. Rosenberg, he would give me one thousand Hong Kong dollars a month for my uh, hut fund called hut. Fund uh-huh. instead of squatter fund, it was a hut fund. So I would help people get a place on land. I would help them with uh, hospital expenses. I never ran out of money. Right. It was it was just coming. I didn't have a bank. People needed money. I would give them money. I said, now if you can pay it back, that's okay. But if you can't, that's okay too.
0: But did they have? Did they? Were they able to have funerals? With
1: they were, but. Uh, I would rebel against a very costly... There was a ceremony offered by one of the religions over there. It was 10000 Hong Kong dollars to have a oh, prayer wow. service for someone who died. A woman carrying her grandchildren crossed one of the busy streets in Hong Kong, and she was struck by a, a car, and the two children died, but she didn't. So she told me she was going to have this prayer service costing $10,000 Hong Kong. And I said, I will not pay for that. I will try to pray for you, pray with you, but I'm not going to pay 10000 Hong Kong dollars for a prayer service. So we did without the prayer service and I helped her find a burial spot and also helped an indigent woman find a burial spot. So, We managed.
0: Exactly. We managed. I remember when I was um, a parishioner in Baton Rouge, there was someone who died in prison. Uh And um, the Sisters of St. Joseph at the time had gotten a funeral home to provide services and gotten a place to bury this man who died in prison. Mm-hmm. and it's amazing there was such a, um, like a, a reaction to that that lots of people withdrew their um, arrangements they had made with this funeral home so that there are even issues of money when someone dies, and if this particular group of nuns wanted to help and provide a place for them to have a burial, it didn't it it wasn't well accepted in the community mm-hmm. and the, and I think that it just along goes along the lines of death itself is not necessarily acceptable. Mm. They didn't talk about it in China, and we might talk about it here, but it doesn't mean that it's acceptable and that people understand it, and people are ready to go there and I know I remember I did a lot of volunteer work at um one of the local hospitals here, and they did something called comfort care which was a precursor to hospice, to make an effort to educate people. Because what's happened is how we care for people that we know are dying and they have accepted that is different than how we care for someone who is not with hospice. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to have palliative care or care that is going to help them just be comfortable rather than overcome an illness, is a shift in thinking. Mm -hmm. And we almost don't like to think that we should do that because it means we're giving up. And, you know, can you speak to how death is natural, like there's nothing we can do to prevent the fact that we're all going to die? And that maybe Scripture speaks to that, or some of your life experiences that you could help us educate the concept of hospice is, is a healthy
1: one? Definitely, because when I was working with hospice here in Lafayette, uh, being a total stranger, I didn't know the geography. Mm-hmm. Bro Bridge, for example, is uh, there's a lot of hospice workers from Burl Bridge who worked in the hospice office. And so when I was sent to visit patients in Burl Bridge, I found a Cajun gentleman by the name of Clifford, with a very common Cajun name, and I would say, I'll meet you on I-10, right outside of Bull Bridge, at an R&V shop, and then we'll go together. Right. So when I would go into the R&V shop, the owner would say, oh, here comes the merchants of death. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd say, we're not the merchants of death. We're helping people prepare for the journey. Exactly. So it's a positive thing. We're gonna try to make it easy because the hospice nurses and doctors, they're masters at pain control, and it doesn't have to be such a painful thing. And as chaplain, my little mission is to try to have people accept the mission, the passage. And I would pull on this passage from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, Kay. Chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. Yes. There's a heavy percentage of Catholics in this area here, and Christians who know the Bible. They know where Philippians is. Mm-hmm. They know where chapter 1, verse 21 is. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that was shocking to some people to hear someone say, to die is gain, but it is. Death is a liberation from a lot of suffering. And I learned that in Harlem. I was in Harlem in the summers of 65 and 66, where death was, every day there was so much crime and violence, Mm -hmm. unlike Breeze, Illinois.
0: Unlike Breeze. In Mm -hmm. fact,
1: my first funeral service was in Harlem. Wow. As a student. Mm -hmm. I went to this funeral of a a friend he was actually our acculturation director and he probably got too close to all of us who were uh, of a different race and he was murdered on his front steps wow so we went to his funeral service and the minister did not show up so the, the funeral director asked me to take the funeral and i said no i'm not prepared to do that and then i sat there and we waited Few minutes later, the director came again. He said, "Please, I need you to take this funeral, because there's another one coming up in a few minutes, and <laughs> I have to get this body out." Of it. <laughs> so I was pressured into taking the, uh, the the service there. I said, "Well, give me this obituary, and uh, give me a Bible." And I read the passage from Jesus raising Lazarus, uh-huh. said a few words, and the funeral went on. So that was my first funeral. Right.
0: Um, As I have seen um, people in hospital settings, I'm also a cancer survivor, so I've dealt with death a couple of times myself. And when you see the the attitude about death and dying in some physicians and some families, it's like, we have to do everything we can. We have Mm -hmm. to do everything we can. I mean, there comes a time when everything you can is to hold their hand and make them comfortable. Mm-hmm. And there's um, like maybe some sense of failure if you die. Like, like there's this... And so that blocks. That's some sort of social thing that doesn't come from a scripture. Mm-hmm. And we read the scripture, but we keep maybe um, bowing to the, to the social thing well. They did everything they could, but well, there is nothing someone can do that's going to stop us from dying. And we just—it's just such um, a—it's heavy in so many ways. But I I also understand, and that if you can accept the fact that death is really the ultimate healing, Mm -hmm. and that you're going to then you live freer. There's a freedom to live when you face the fact of dying. Mm-hmm. And um, how can we, or what can we do to bring that more into the social fabric of, of our world here in Lafayette? I mean, I know we've been trying, because when you were at hospice, I was a volunteer with you. <laughs> well,
1: what I would do quietly... In fact, I did it with uh, my mother-in-law. She died at 107. When other members of the family weren't in the room, I would say to her, Mother Hebert, you really don't have to hang around. (laughs) You may go, you just turn out the lights. And I'd say the most beautiful hospice experience I had here in Lafayette was a woman whose name was also Rose, and she was dying of cancer and the nurses told me that her only surviving sibling was out in California and the two of them had friction so her sister from California would not be coming back to Lafayette to say goodbye to Rose. Uh So I said to the nurses, well why don't we just gather around and have a little prayer service here and I will try to talk to Rose and you know help her move along. So we gathered around, we said a little prayer, and I'm literally holding Rose's hand. And I said, you know, your sister in California is so busy with her family, she can't come back here to Lafayette to be with you. But you don't have to wait for her. I said, we can have a little prayer service right here, and all you have to do is reach up and turn off the light <laughs> if you're going to sleep. You reach up, turn off the light, and Just let yourself go." And she was conscious. She said, that's all I have to do. I said, that's all you have to do. Just say goodbye and go. And I'm holding her hand. And when I said, just say goodbye, Rose, and move on. She literally died at that same second. Wow. And it was beautiful. So the nurses, uh, they were touched by, they witnessed her death right there. And I think she was aware that she was going to be dying soon, so she had already prepared a little will in which she gave her car to one of the nurses that was taking care of her. So it was a nice little it's beautiful. farewell. It's yeah. yeah. Because there's nothing wrong with saying to relatives, okay, your mother, father, sister, brother, child is going to die soon, and saying goodbye is really meaning, God bless you. That's what goodbye means. It's, yeah. So say goodbye, God bless you, and let them go.
0: Well, do you think that you were ever taught the reality of that in your training as a priest? No. I, I don't think that the physicians no. and nurses are being taught that in medical school. So no. we're having to apply something that we understand is necessary but it isn't taught anywhere. So we're kind of like a school right here. You know, like um, I I was very grateful. My mom died in 2005 and hospice was uh, a a wonderful help for me because although I knew what was going on, I couldn't ever tell my siblings because I'm just a sibling in that family. And and when they would say it's time for this or it's time for that or you can look for this, then I didn't. I could just be. I could be my mother's child, mm-hmm. and uh, I have a friend who still has a ministry of playing the harp, and she played harp for mom, and and I could truly have a feeling of rejoicing when mom died because we were getting ready for that. And you know, but it's but people who, in the medical field don't necessarily get that and and so when when someone decides that they want hospice they have to say sometimes goodbye to their old doctor and then go to a new doctor mm-hmm. and then there's a, a a shift but it's a it's a shift into comfort care mm-hmm. and I don't I don't think I don't know how we could get this taught. I don't know what could be a requirement to teach the priests and the doctors and the nurses and all them together on on the spirituality of death and dying i I, I think it it could be an inter interdisciplinary interdenominational inter it, it would be just real helpful i think
1: really. Well, reading Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book, The Stages of Death and Dying. Now, when I was in a hospital in Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. I was really imprisoned for two weeks because the doctors didn't want me to get out of bed. They saw this huge mass on my brain, and they they thought it was an aneurysm. They didn't recognize it It was a tumor. So I had to stay in bed for two weeks, and people would bring books into me. So I read the stages of death and dying. And I realized I had gone through all those stages. (laughs) There's uh, the first stage, which is anger. Well, anger and denial, first and second. And my friend who brought me here to Lafayette, he was the doctor who told me I should write my will. And I got so angry, I used foul language. I said, I'm 35 years old, and you've turned me into a 95-year-old man. (laughs) And... He said, I'm sorry, but this is the medical report. You better write out your will. So it's anger, denial, bargaining. I bargained for more time because I was only 35. And there's sadness, a depression, and then finally peaceful acceptance. It doesn't have to be one, two, three, four, five like that. Yeah, they come and go, they come and go, exactly. It can be a a cloak, you know, many different colors. But I reached stage five where I thought, well, I don't like having these seizures, which the, the brain tumor brought on, and I guess I would rather die. So I, <laughs> I just kind of uh, opened my arms and said, yeah, I'm ready. And here I am at 79, and I'm totally free. I have no fear of death. I'm afraid of getting on Kali's saloon.
0: <laughs> well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm afraid of these roads around here. But I have no fear of death
0: well i, I know too one time you told me um at, you said you had an inoperable brain tumor, but you had to become friends with your you had to become friends with your brain tumor, and so you that's a that's like a that's becoming friends with your illness rather than fighting it. that's a novel idea
1: we have but to it be, makes sense we have to befriend our weaknesses, yes. So, and you know that I write haiku poetry. This is three lines. Yes, I do. Five, seven, five. Do you have one for us? <laughs> well, my first haiku was, we cannot outrun brain tumors. So just relax. <laughs> then call them your friends. So that was my first haiku. Wow. And I'm up to 15,000 of them now.
0: See, accepting what you have doesn't necessarily mean you succumb to it. No. And there, there are some people who well, we don't want her to know she has that because then she's going to give up or something. Well, accepting is not giving up. Mm-hmm. Accepting is knowing what is to be expected, but we can always surpass those expectations. Because, mm-hmm. look, I was 37, <laughs> you're 35, and we really are old friends today. <laughs>
1: We're witnesses too. Survivability.
0: Exactly. Another thing that I think um, was important, as I, I understood it in real life, when I worked with you, when you volunteer with people who are dying, then you volunteer to be with people from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. So, if you were in China, you would have volunteered to serve the squatters, and so in in this area, you volunteered to serve people who live in the projects are people who are of different everything than you, socioeconomic level, I mean, the whole thing. So there's also something about a sensitivity to people who are not in your culture. You know, I just got back in October, we did um, two weeks in India to learn about death and dying, and I I was privileged to have heard Elizabeth Kubler-Ross speak Mm -hmm. in Baton Rouge, and... um, we, we saw people of different faiths readily deal with death and dying in, um, in a more natural way than we do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how we could help to educate the people in our medical institutions and religious institutions to allow death to be seen as a natural process. And not the end of anything but a beginning.
1: I don't know either. Yeah. But I, I found that people who fill out the advanced directives, right. which means they don't want any unusual means taken to right. prolong life, uh, they can be ignored by certain doctors.
0: Oh, I had to. I had that's to do right. some advocacy for that particular yeah. issue.
1: I think that's very... It's abusive.
0: It is, and and if you yourself have written this, which says you you don't want any, like, um, you don't want to, you want to be able to go naturally when the time comes. You don't want to be uh, intubated. You don't want anything that's going to keep you there if your body can't sustain you. Anything in that, including a feeding tube, I think, is part of that. Right. But if you write that and you don't have someone in your family to stand up for you for that, it won't be honored.
1: And that's a shame.
0: Uh, that's contractual, and I don't understand that either. But I've I'm had not a lawyer. No, there's I'm, also, yeah.
1: you must say, well, I don't want any more surgeries. I've had five brain surgeries, and you can be my witness right here. I do not want another brain surgery. One is enough, one is enough. So I have several friends and I've told them, please, when the time comes for me, please tell my lovely wife that I do not want another (laughs) brain surgery. I asked the neurosurgeons, have you ever had brain surgery? No, of course not. I said, well then you don't know what I'm going through. (laughs) We have to laugh at it, but they're not gonna volunteer for brain surgery. Yeah. They can they can administer it, they can perform it, but they don't want that experience on themselves mm-hmm. because they don't know how they're gonna wake up without a limb, without the ability to speak, cognitive facilities are gone. So I do not want any more brain surgeries, and that's on my advanced directive. Right. It's a matter of accepting the passage from this this life to the next life. And it, it involves faith. And with faith, there's doubt. There's doubt. That's what makes faith, faith, because it's not having certainty. Okay. But we do have some kind of belief that there is another world. In fact, a friend of mine in Philadelphia, when he was 45, he had a big heart surgery, a massive heart attack. So he was in the, and by the way, he's a, he's a mortician. <laughs> At 45 years of age, he's in a Philadelphia hospital. And one morning he feels his feet become ice cold. So he rings the, the bell, a nurse came in and she said, well, Mr. Dunahue, you rang the bell, what's the problem? He said, nurse, he said, my feet are ice cold and the cold is coming up my legs. I think I'm dying. And she said, yes, you are dying. So she hit the code blue button and then he got very emotional. He said, everybody came in to my hospital room there. The uh, doctors came in, the nurses came in, the code blue crew, he called. (laughs) And they had that fibrillator. He says, they shocked me they are giving me injections. They're pounding on me. No, 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 Mr. Downhill. You can't die. You can't die now. He said, I died. I literally died and I felt my spirit sh- go to the top of the room and I'm looking down on that code blue crew. Wow. And they're pounding on me and they, they didn't want me to die. <laughs> and He said, I was so peaceful at at the top of my room. My spirit was gone. And I'm up there, and I'm looking down, and he used some vulgar terms, on that blinkety blank cold blue crew. <laughs> and he says, Shh. They brought him back into my body. And I was so blinkety blank angry <laughs> because he said it was such a beautiful experience. Now, you must hear him describe that himself, but I'll never forget that description of a man who died and came back to life. And I had that experience when I was a child. I drowned at the age of eight and someone saved me. Wow. But my life went by me in cinema fashion, real, like you're watching a movie and then you turn it up as fast as it will go. I saw my whole life go by. And I was saved by a high school student and I, after I spewed out all the water that I had taken in, so I'm a survivor. Wow. I was only eight years old at that time.
0: And there are lots of things, uh, there are lots of studies now from people who have had what is called a near-death experience, experience, which explains the afterlife not in the terms of any specific religion. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a general thing, and it's a reality, and we can see it as a reality. uh, And it brings some, uh, some benefits... And but when you stop and think about that, you know he, he was watching them during his own code, and he was like, <laughs> "No, I often tell people, not initially, but it's okay that you survive cancer, but you're not going to survive life." Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because so many people think, "Okay, well, I, I had that now, I got it made." Well, you got it made until something else is going to come along. You and I were blessed and fortunate enough to have it made through a few things only to prepare us for what we really need to prepare for, which we don't even know is coming, so a lot of people who are cancer survivors die of something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's... I, I, I don't know how, but it's a natural part of who we are. and It's kind of like it's just, I'm uh, curious as to how we could teach it, because we have to be creative about that, because it's not in a curriculum yet. There is a course on death and dying here at the university that people can take. I took it. Started S-
1: by Sarah Brabant.
0: She's not teaching anymore. No. She's retired. They have uh, one or two other people who teach, but basically it's mm-hmm. the same course. And I had a conversation with her once, um... It was really interesting, you know, um, because she said after she taught death and dying, maybe for the second time, she realized that she wasn't teaching about dying. She really was teaching about living, mm-hmm. and the whole deal of facing the death, contemplating facing the death, and whatever you do in the class and whatever you do in life and whatever deaths you have experienced from those around you allows you to live much, much fuller Mm -hmm. than if you just push it aside.
1: She has a lot of experience and I respect her. So I'm glad somebody's continuing with her course now that she's retired.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and a great sense of humor. That's it. You know, humor helps everything. It, it really, really does. So when you worked at at hospice, um, well, you, you you worked with death and dying. Then you 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 also did uh, a stint with uh, not prison ministry, but yes. you you worked at. As I was the chaplain, jail chaplain. The jail chaplain, in
1: 2000 until 2008.
0: Well, did they have a hospice piece there? Because we have gone. Some of the hospice volunteers have been to prison to help the prisoners who do hospice. Do they have a hospice at the local jail?
1: I really don't know. I had to leave in 2008 because the doors in the jail weighed 200 pounds.
0: Oh my goodness! Yeah,
1: and. I had two surgeries on my only functioning hand in two years, and the doctor said you must get out of that jail because you're going to lose your good hand, and if you can't use your other hand, you're an invalid, so I left. So I've been gone since 2008, and I don't know. I'll I'll check with the local chaplain and see if they do have a hospice service. I
0: mean, it's not a long-term facility like we were at long-term jail jails, but I'm just wondering if there was any... uh, any kind of services like that there only because we had been to long term prisons. Angola definitely, definitely, has a hospice, yeah, yes. yeah.
1: Because those are those are life sentences for most of the people out there. But I will find out. I doubt if there is in Lafayette because it's because it's short term. Jails are just short term. Exactly. A prison is long term. Right. Jails are short term.
0: But wherever people are, where there are whether they are in jail or they're squatters or they live in the projects, they all have the same needs. Yes and we kind of forget that because we get comfortable with people who are our peers and we just we just kind of stay in that comfort zone.
1: Well, I think that uh, it's a subject that people really don't want to deal with. they want to deal with it, but yet. What do we do when we get a newspaper? I mean, one of the first things we do is go to the obituary, see which one of my friends or relatives has uh, checked out. Right. And uh, I do that. That's a pattern for me. I turn on the Amy Goodman and the news of the day, which is a lot of news about death in Aleppo, right, Afghanistan, Iraq, then I check the local deaths. Which and as
0: it. you get older, you say, well, I didn't see my name in the paper, so I guess I have another <laughs> day, you know? <laughs> yeah, there is that. This yeah. is true, we do. And we, and we, and we you know, I don't, I don't know what other cultures are like, but we faithfully attend funerals mm-hmm. and, and show support for the family. And, and, and one of the most common, well, I don't know what to say, but even if we don't know what to say, we usually show up.
1: Just be there.
0: You know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of ease maybe in even funerals and funeral planning, mm-hmm. if if there's maybe a, a greater sense of that this is natural, mm-hmm. even if it seems the child is young or it was unexpected or it was a. Every death is natural, even if we don't like the circumstances of how the death came to be. And and I think that that in itself could be real helpful. So I don't know. Maybe in 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 your retirement, and we could ask Sarah to consult us. We could start a school for death and dying, but not that you're going to die in the school. (laughs) Go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so important just to be there to be there we don't have to say a lot Uh, there's a friend I have here in in Lafayette he lives in poverty and his son died suddenly and he called me and he wanted to know if I would have a funeral service for him on one of the holidays of the year Mm. and I said well you don't have a minister or a priest no he said I do not I said well how are you going to have the funeral if you're unemployed? He said, I'm renting a casket from one of the uh, funeral directors in Tanya, and my son is going to be in this rented casket, and all I want is for you just to come and, and say a few prayers. I said, well, of course I will do that. So I will never, that's the most memorable funeral I've had. Wow. In, outside of holding Rosemary's hand, when she right. <laughs> So here we are at this funeral home, but the director was kind enough to let him rent the casket for this this service. That is
0: a kindness. Yes.
1: And, you know, that's a very expensive thing, but I have a friend in town who's a carpenter. His nickname is Corky. And, well, I've been living with uh, a brain tumor for 40 years, and I said, I'd like to have my casket made to save my wife the trouble. He said, well, sure, I'll take care of that for you. I said, make it plywood. <laughs> <laughs> the cheapest possible. He said, well, are you close? I said, you mean close to the funeral home? <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> he said, are you close to dying? I said, well, I've got a brain tumor and I'm living on borrowed time.
0: He said, sure, I'll
1: make that casket for you.
0: Did he measure your height and width or something just to make sure you would fit?
1: He asked me how (laughs) tall I was. I said, I'm 6'2". So he he called up one day and he said, "Uh, I finished your casket. And uh, he said, I didn't make it out of plywood. I gave you pine wood. Ooh, Ooh, that's class. That's very class. So I have a pine casket and he put it in The garage of the Sarai Funeral Home on Simcoe. You're ready. So it's all there. I love it. One of the words that I remember down here is traka.
0: Trouble. Traka is trouble, yeah. I
1: I don't want to cause a lot of traka for, did I say that right? You sure did. (laughs) I don't want a lot of traka for Rosalind, so the, the casket's all there.
0: See, that's another part of of the reality that you know, if you take care of those things as much as you can, when there's no danger, there's no pressure, yeah. it, it makes it a lot easier because you won't be there. They're going to wonder, what did you want? What did you not want? That's a big <clears throat> that's a big gift to the survivors. Oh, yes. It really, really is. It's just, uh, I don't know.
1: Well, also, before the fifth, <laughs> fourth and fifth brain surgeries, The neurosurgeon in town told me it's going to be an eight-hour, very challenging ordeal. So I thought, yeah, I'm not going to make it. (laughs) I'm not going to make it. So I called the director of this home in town here, the funeral. And at lunchtime, he came over to the jail, and he took care of all my funeral arrangements. So Mm -hmm. it's all prepared. All I got to do is turn off the light. And, you know, until you're ready, you're here. Total freedom. Turn off the light. It's all taken
0: care of. I love it. Vic, I want to thank you for coming and, and sharing your time with us. And, and hopefully someone is going to be inspired by your stories. I always am.
1: Don't you want to talk about the teas? You said you... Yeah. Well, I forgot to. You know, our time, time is up. Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: But we can, uh, we can have that in the... Uh, later, I'll have you come back. <laughs> oh, okay. <Sounds laughs> thank you. Good.
1: Thank you. I'm glad we're going to live another day.
0: Me too. <laughs>
1: Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cadeau Podcast. I'm your host, Becca Begno. Matt Roberts produced the show. Thanks to AOC Community Media for the use of their facilities. For information about AOC, you can visit AOCINC.org. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup.